Mado, do you want to me? <laughs> I'm much better muted. <laughs> but welcome, everybody, uh, from all over. Um, and it, it is a beautiful day. Uh, and I'm very grateful that you can all be here. Here, uh, of course, virtually here. I'd like to begin by um, quoting a master, Soen Nakagaga Roshi, who said, day after day, year after year, we Zen students apply ourselves to the study of the unthinkable. Year after year, day after day, we Zen students apply ourselves to the study of the unthinkable. I'd like to adapt that to this morning by saying week after week, month after month, we Dharma teachers apply ourselves to trying to speak about the unspeakable. Week after week, I do my best to speak about the unspeakable. Can anybody, particularly this week, when we are addressing the sixth paramita of wisdom, can anybody speak about wisdom without being wise? I mean, yeah, we can speak about it. I can speak about it, but it's totally unreliable. Everything I have to say is to be taken as totally unreliable. It seems that the other paramitas, like the paramita of generosity, of wholeheartedness, good-heartedness, of patience, of concentration, of effort. You know, you can kind of approach those with a little bit of understanding of what those might mean. But wisdom seems to be in a different category. The more I thought, however, about the other five paramitas, the more it occurred to me that it really isn't in a different category. Because though we think we can speak about generosity without being generous, or that we can speak about good-heartedness without being good-hearted, or that we can speak about energy and enthusiasm and effort without expending those, that we can speak about concentration 
without having been concentrated is also kind of unreliable. So that wisdom about all of these paramitas has to do with actually experiencing them before we can begin to speak about them. So without the wisdom of generosity, there is no uh, deep understanding of what generosity is. And anyone who would speak about that, any of these paramitas, without actually having been immersed in them in a deep way, uh, should be taken very lightly. So certainly in the case of wisdom, please, Disregard everything I have to say, but I am going to speak. I feel it fairly safe to speak about wisdom in the context of the Bodhisattva vow. That is in the context of a being who wants to help other people, wants to help all beings. And of course, the, these are the paramitas. They're the trainings and the expressions of bodhisattvas. So the bodhisattva in his or her practice is dedicated to serving all beings. And so in this case, the question becomes, how do we serve all beings wisely? What, what would that amount to? How would that be characterized? I want to um, offer the phrase, an appropriate response as a way of encapsulating the wisdom that would be in service to all beings. This is a very classic phrase in Buddhist practice. That is, how do we respond to the sufferings of others in an appropriate way? And in order to do that, we have to cultivate wisdom. We have to cultivate understanding on a very deep level in order to know how to respond appropriately. There is a, another classic story which has taken many forms. I'll offer one today. There is a, a man who is sitting in his garden and he notices a beautiful silk cocoon on the ground. And he is drawn to the beauty of this silken cocoon 
and finds himself concentrating on it, um, paying attention to it, and noticing that there is a struggle going on in the cocoon, that uh, it's pulsating and it seems as if something is trying to emerge. And of course, we know that cocoons produce beings called butterflies. And as he's watching this struggle, he finds himself having compassion, a compassionate response to this struggle going on in the cocoon. And the more he watches this struggle, the more agitated and uh, feeling he has for whatever is struggling inside of that cocoon. And he notices that a little hole begins to open in the cocoon and he feels, oh yes, this is, this is, this is progressing in a way that, <laughs> that makes me feel a little better. But then everything stopped and didn't see any more activity. And he started to get worried that maybe something terrible had happened. And so he ran inside and got a scissors and began cutting into that hole very good-heartedly to help that creature emerge and cutting it more and more open. And yes, there did emerge a creature from that cocoon, but it was a creature with a swollen belly and wings that were all dried up and stuck to the body of that creature. And the creature just fell to the ground and kind of crawled around for a while and then just died. This is a person with tremendous compassion but not wisdom, not wisdom. And these are the two wings of our practice, compassion and wisdom. Without wisdom, compassion is ineffective, sometimes damaging. And without compassion, wisdom is abstract and dry. and intellectual, basically, inactive. So an appropriate, what would be an appropriate response? Well, it's hard to say, but it's certainly the case that paying attention and seeing deeply into what was needed by that creature rather than what we project onto what is needed from our own limited view sometimes creates more damage than if we did nothing 
So we want to help beings. We want to help people who are suffering. We want to help animals who are suffering, who are suffering. We want to help other, we want to like rescue plants that are suffering. Um, but it's wonderful to be motivated by that feeling of compassion, suffering with. But then we need to ask what is best, not to, to express our feelings, and sometimes it's more like anthropomorphizing things, or somehow catering more to our needs than to the needs of those who are who we're helping. So the wisdom has to have, have a kind of integrity of its own. And in a way, just like all the other paramitas, this wisdom is natural. This wisdom is open-minded. This wisdom comes into being if we can only give our discursive minds a rest. Sometimes we feel in order to access this intuition or this insight, which is the wisdom that we're talking about, which is much more a matter of insight and intuition than it is of intellectual capacity. It's not about knowledge. It's about insight. And if we could somehow give our busy minds, always trying to figure things out, trying to take control of things, if we could give that mind a rest, we could access this natural wisdom that can flow from us. To see things as they are, to see people as they are, and to know the appropriate response that would help them, not just us, or our idea of them, or our idea of what they should be doing or how they should be living or thriving. Sometimes we think we need to force our, our busy, crazy mind to leave us alone. People are always, this is one of the typical things that people come to Zen with. Oh, my mind is so busy. I can't quiet my mind. I can't settle down. Um, you know, I'm just bursting. My brain is bursting with activity. And how can I control that? We talked about this as mind training. This is not a compassionate way of treating your busy mind. A much more compassionate way of treating the busy mind is saying, let's have a cup of tea. I, I invite you to take a rest for a while. Just rest. This, this is not about fighting 
fighting, trying to control your mind. This is about just inviting it to rest for a while. It's a rest for a while. That you're really not needed in this situation. So it's okay when you're needed, when you have to figure out an algebra problem, or when you have to figure out how to fix a le leaky faucet, uh, yeah, we'll bring you in and we can figure things out. But when, when you're dealing with the mystery of life, you're not needed. <laughs> when you're trying to deal with the mystery of the nature of another person or being, you know, just go to your place and have a rest for a while. It's okay. About 20 years ago, when we were building this house that I live in, we have a radiant heat hot water system in the floor, in the floors of this house. And we made the mistake of laying down the floor downstairs before we tested the heating system for leaks because there's hot water flowing through those pipes and it would have been a good thing to test that before we put the floor down. We didn't do that. And so after the floor was laid, oh my God, now we have to test the heating system. It turns out, of course, that there was a leak, that we put pressure through the pipes and the pressure system showed that it, there was a leak somewhere. Well, we spent a, a good day, at least, I in particular, with my ear to the floor, trying to determine where that leak was. Just hearing that, you know, where, where, and this was a 12 by 20 foot floor. And so all day long, putting the, the pressure going through and my ear to the floor, trying to figure out where that leak was. No luck. We decided to buy a, what's called an, uh, an amplified microphone, <laughs> a microphone that actually amplified sound. So again, put the pressure through the, through the pipes and went all over with this amplified microphone trying to find where the leak was. Couldn't hear anything. Okay. Still trying to figure things out. I had this brilliant idea that we were going to pipe marijuana through the system 
and get a drug sniffing dog to find where this marijuana was leaking in the floor. And I actually called the local police station to see if we could get a drug sniffing dog to come out and find our leak. And the policeman in the office said, ma'am, if the citizens of Pennsylvania ever knew that these thousands and thousands of dollar drug sniffing dogs were lent out to find a leak in your plumbing system, <laughs> you, would, you, would you would be shot. Well, that didn't work, obviously. So again, back to the, to the ear, to the floor. So all day long and actually into the next day, uh, all I got out of that effort to hear the leak was an ear that was about really swollen and red and an ear infection. And I just decided I'm giving up. Uh, we're going to have to tear up the floor. There's no other way that we can do it. And I went to bed that night having totally given up. The next morning, I woke up. Immediately, I knew where the leak was. This is a true story. I went downstairs and immediately went right to the spot where the leak was. And, and, it, and that's where it was. Isn't that wonderful? So what did I learn from that? And why am I sharing that with you? I gave my mind a rest. Not deliberately. <laughs> and that's, that's often how it happens. You know, you get an ear infection and a swollen ear from thinking too much <laughs> and listening too much. And then you're just exhausted and you give up. And that's when your wisdom kicks in. That's when your natural sense, your intuition kicks in, your insight kicks in by giving the mind a rest. So what kind of a mind is this that has rested from trying to figure out things, trying too hard to figure everything out. It's a mind that's empty. It's, I went to sleep and I woke up, right? This is, this is Buddha. You wake up. And how do you wake up? You wake up with an empty mind. It doesn't take too long before the mind starts going, you know, after you get out of bed or even when you open your eyes. But there is that moment of awakening. 
This is, this is enlightenment. The moment of awakening, you wake up in the morning and you have an empty mind. A mind emptied of thoughts. A mind empty of information. A mind empty of interpretation. A mind empty of judgment. A mind empty of focus. A mind empty of expectation. A mind empty of bias. A mind empty of preconceptions. A mind empty of beliefs and opinions. A mind empty of wisdom, a mind empty of emptiness. Open, open. There's a book called Opening the Hand of Thought. It's a mind of open, open the hand. Empty mind, beginner's mind, we sometimes call it and Suzuki Roshi speaks. Beginner's mind, empty mind is full of possibility. An expert's mind is full of opinions and beliefs. <laughs> opinions and beliefs, expert's mind. Beginner's mind, empty. But not empty in the sense of void empty as full of possibility, full of in the possibility of insight, full of wonder. Today, I would like to equate wisdom with wonder. not just the mind which is passive or dull or mindless, but a mind which is full of wonder. And what? What is, in, what is, what is there? What's out there? What is coming to meet me? What is coming to meet me? Wisdom and wonder. This is a, a state of being that when the koan, which is a practice more uh, uh, central to Rinzai tradition than to Soto, which is our tradition. You're given a koan. 
a, a puzzle like what is the sound of one hand clapping or what is your original face before you were born uh, or typically you're given the koan moo and you're you're given this koan and you're supposed to concentrate on it and live with it and try to figure it out and try to respond to it adequately. And what often happens with this koan is that you're driven to the point of giving up because it is an impossible question to answer. Like, what is your original face before you were born? And so you try to figure it out. I was given the koan moo at one point, and I can't tell you how many sleepless nights I had there trying to figure it out. I have pages and pages in my journal of trying to figure out what moo was. And I finally realized in a moment that my initial reaction to moo was the answer to moo. And my original reaction to moo was what? That's it. <laughs> you have to do anything more. It's the moment of wonder. What? Not why, but what? That is the wisdom mind, the mind of wonder. And how do we cultivate the mind of wonder? By meditating. By just sitting. Shikantaza. Just this. Just waiting. Just being available. Just emptying, 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 emptying. Opening, 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 opening. 